Good morning. Um, if you have an extra seat at your table, push it away from your table. There are some people coming in and they may, may need some seats. And um, if you are at a table and you feel a little too crowded, there are some tables that have no chairs around them. Feel free to pull to that area. And there is some spacing here as well. It's good to see people coming back. Good to see uh, people showing up. But we also want to make sure that you have uh, the comfortable space that you need to spread out. And there are also chairs in the back um, to my right, to your left, if you're looking at me. Uh, and they are up there, upside down. And you can grab those and pull them wherever uh, you find an open spot. All right? Welcome. And uh, we are here uh, continuing our journey that we started last week in the book of Exodus. If you remember last week, we kind of did an introduction and we started talking about the story, the background to it. Uh, Exodus is probably one of the most pivotal and maybe foundational books in all of scripture besides Genesis. I mean, really, if you think about it, these first five books, the book of Moses really are foundational to everything that happens beyond that point. Because everything, the reasoning and rationale for understanding the prophets and to understand the wisdom literature and even the gospels and the pastoral letters find their foundation back in these first five books because they tell us what God's plan is. They tell us who God is. They tell us what God is like, what God demands. And it kind of explains the problem that's there from the very beginning, which is sin. So Exodus is one that we keep referring back to. If you were with us through our journey through the Gospel of John, then you know that oftentimes we were referring back to Exodus because John uses Passover as kind of the framework to build his gospel around. And so we thought, well, you've never studied this book. It makes sense to go back and study a book that's so influential in our New Testament studies. So that's what we began last week. And if you remember last week, we spent some time opening up the book of Exodus, setting the stage, but to understand it fully, you got to go back to Genesis. So we went back and talked about the promises that were made to Abraham. Uh, we talked about uh, the promises of, of him being a great nation, for him having descendants that outnumbered the stars in the sky, the sands on the sea, but yet he didn't have any descendants. And so God, you know, kind of worked this miracle through his life, giving him a son in his late age, him and his wife, miracle son. And then the rest of Genesis kind of follows that promise and showing God's faithfulness. So we go from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. Well, one of those is Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph. Brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him. They instead sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up in a really dark place. Uh, he ends up being sold into slavery, a slave, a slave in Potiphar's house. He gets falsely accused, ends up in jail. In jail, he continues to trust God. God uses him to interpret dreams. Someone says they're going to remember him. They forget him. So he's there even longer. And then finally, the events change where um, he has the opportunity to interpret a dream for Pharaoh that no one else could interpret. And a matter of fact, if you remember the story, Pharaoh said, I don't want you to interpret my dream. I first want you to tell me what my dream was. Then I want you to interpret it. And of course, all of his magicians are like, there's no one that can do that. There's no one in, in the history of mankind who's ever told somebody what their dream is and then interpreted it. And then this guy goes that was in jail. He's like, oh, I know a guy who was really good at interpreting dreams. Uh, he's in your jail. Well, who is he? Uh, his name is Joseph. Well, go get him. Brings him out. And Joseph says, I can't do it either, but God can. And it's just amazing that, that Joseph still shows this incredible strength and, and, and faith in God when 
of all people, he could be one who just blames God for his circumstances. God, you forgot me. God, look where I am. God, I was in this nice house and now I'm, I'm enslaved. I've been falsely accused. You have not come to my honor. You have not come to rescue me. But he never had that opinion. He always saw the opportunity of wherever he was for God to do something. And so he shows up and he says, I can't do it, but God can. And he said, give me some time. He prays. God tells him exactly what the dream is. He comes back. He tells Pharaoh, well, Joseph rises to second in command in all of Egypt. He oversees the collection of food for the famine that was coming. And then, of course, during the famine, his brothers, that's where the story reconnects, they come to get food. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And then Joseph, through this series of being reconciled to his brothers and his dad, he makes this statement because the brothers think he's going to kill them. And he says, no, I know what you're thinking, but let me just say something to you. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And it really epitomizes Joseph's perspective of everything, whether he was in Potiphar's house or whether he was in the jail cell or whether he was at the top second in command of everything. He understood that it's God's business, God's in control, God's sovereign over all things. And God was working this out to this end so that all of them could be saved. And that's a beautiful perspective because as we walk through difficult times, the temptation is to believe that God has abandoned us, to believe that God is not interested in us or that he's not faithful to us like maybe he's being to other people. Or maybe God's just not as interested in us today as he was in Israel in those days and times. And I'm telling you, that's a lie. That's not true. And your heart needs to wrap itself around the only anchor that's true. And that is the promises of God that we find in scripture. And so that's what we want to do. We want to embrace that same thing that Joseph had. Well, the story goes dark again. Joseph, you think everything's going good. He brings his family in. They go to Goshen, a land in Egypt. They have favor with Pharaoh. But then Exodus opens up with that telltale sign of there came a Pharaoh in power who did not know Joseph, which we talked about last week. Doesn't mean he didn't know Joseph. What it meant was he did not respect what the last administration did or the favors that he promised. So it's just like in our own culture, whenever a new president comes in, they clean out the cabinet, they start over, they reappoint everybody. All the promises that were made in the last one, they make new promises, all the executive orders, cancel those out, make new executive orders. It's kind of that, like that same thing. So the one that came in was more of a cultural dynasty. And they overthrew the one that was in control when Joseph was there. So they did not recognize the promises made to Joseph or his people. And so the opening of the book of Exodus is Pharaoh attempting to kind of push back the fear that he has. Remember, he says, I fear that these people, they're growing so big and numerous that they may even outnumber us. And you know what? If our enemies come in to fight us, they may join with our enemies and defeat us. Okay, that's what he said. So that began this process of trying to push these people down. And it started with slavery. And if you remember, after that, it gets a little darker with he brutally treats the slaves. So it starts with just slavery. Then it moves to brutal treatment of the slaves. Why? Because just enslaving them didn't work. And what you're going to see is this progression as you go through these first few chapters of things getting progressively darker, progress progressively worse. Again, what I want you to be reminded of is that's when God works the most miraculous miracles is when it's the darkest times. And so we see the darkness progressively getting worse and worse in this story. So let's pick up with where we left off last week in verse 15 of chapter one. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Now, 
Let's stop right there for a moment. The question we would ask is, who are these ladies? Because um, scripture does not name everybody that's involved. And another thing that we would pay attention to is, isn't it interesting that he doesn't name the Pharaoh, but he does name these two Hebrew midwives. If you are looking at the upper echelon of society in that day and time and the bottom of society, he names those who you would never name, and he doesn't name the one who would most prominently be named. And I think that's all intentional. I think the fact that these ladies' names live on, their legacy lives on because of what they did, and we're going to see that in just a minute. But these ladies are Hebrew midwives. Now, before we get too far into that, let me just say that we are not 100% sure that these ladies were actually Israelites. It's a possibility that they were foreigners. The reason is a lot of times midwives did serve that purpose were usually foreigners or what they would call maidservants. They would help out in that way. And typically maidservants were not native Israelites. They were ones that came in from other countries. Now, we don't know if that's true because again, the Hebrew people are slaves. How many foreigners are still among them serving in that capacity? We don't know. So it could be that they were Israelites and they were just serving as like doulas that we have today. So they were equal in status in the culture. That was just their job. We don't know. There are a few indicators that point in one direction, few indicators that point in the other. Number one that points in the direction that they were Israelites is their names. Those are Hebrew names. Um, Their names um, could though have been afterwards, because remember, Exodus is written after all of these events happen. They're not chronicling it as it happens. They're writing this post getting out, post probably even wilderness, you know, while Moses is up in the mountain before they're going into the promised land, that's when a lot of these things were written down. So these ladies may have been foreigners who joined in with Israel because the scripture tells us when they left in the Exodus that a mixed number went with them. In other words, people from other cultures went with them in the Exodus. And so maybe these ladies went with them seeing the power of their God and they converted to Judaism and they were given Hebrew names. We don't know. The reason that you may think that they were probably not Hebrew people was because Pharaoh somehow entrusted them. Now, the thing is, if you wanted to go and kill the boys that were being born, the one person that you probably would not want to pick is the person who's dedicated their whole life to life and giving life. And not only that, giving life to their own people. That doesn't make sense that you would go to that person and say, hey, I want you to kill all the baby boys as soon as they're born. I mean, you could just see the motherly instinct in these ladies going, yeah, gotcha, we're gonna do that for you. It just doesn't make sense. And the fact that when they came back and and, and the Pharaoh says, why did y'all not do what I told you to do? And they give this excuse of why they didn't do it. He seems to be okay with it. Whereas if they were actually Israelite women, you would think he would make an example of them and, and kill them or something like that. But that doesn't happen either. But again, we don't really know. And the point is, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if they were foreigners or if they were part of the Israel people growing up in that culture. The important thing is they trusted God. They feared God in these circumstances. And that's really how it continues on. Because in verse 16 is where Pharaoh asked them to do this evil deed. He says, I want you to kill the boys that are born. Immediately, when they come out of the womb and you see that they're a boy, I want you to kill them. Okay? And then it says in verse 17, but the midwives, what's that next word? Feared. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male 
children live. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because I really think this whole passage is really about understanding a right fear of God and what it means to fear God. First of all, when it says these ladies feared God, look at the context. The midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt commanded them. Now, do you think there was a fear of the king of Egypt? Yes, obviously. If they don't do this, what he's asked them to do, they know their lives are on the line. So they have two fears that are operating at the same time. They have a fear of what would happen to them here in the context of what they've been commanded to do. But there is a fear that overrides that first fear, and that is the fear of God. So in other words, they think, you know what? God is the author of all life. God is the one who said life is precious. These are God's people. God has demonstrated his favor of these people in the fact that as he has enslaved them and as he has brutally treated them in their slavery, that they have continued to multiply. Therefore, I am not going to stand in the way of what this mighty, awesome God is doing for these people. I'm going to side on the side of that God, not on the side of Pharaoh. And so they choose not to kill any of these baby boys. Now, the fear of God is something that's very important to understand. Because I think in that situation, the way we would typically think about it is, man, I'm scared here, but I'm more scared of this. So since I'm more scared of this, I'm going to go with this and not this. So it's a decision that's made completely out of being scared. But that's not really what the fear of God is about. Matter of fact, the fear of God is not a fear of trepidation. It could start that way. And certainly when God displays his power or his glory is manifest, that is the usual condition of man is to fall down on their face, to hide themselves, to feel undone. We see that over and over again. But most of the time, what we find in the fear of God is more of coalescing to his way of thinking and his way of seeing things. In other words, trusting him with what he's told us is right and true and good. And so when you fear God, it's more of agreeing with him, even though you may not fully understand him. That is a fear of God, understanding his place, his power, and his character. Now, let me show you a psalm that I think explains this a little more. Psalm 34, one through four. Now, I want you to just listen to the attitude of this psalmist. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my, what? Fears. So, What I want you to see there that's very important to understand about the fear of God is when the fear of God is rightly situated, it makes other fears dissipate. This is a person who fears God, but look at his attitude. He doesn't stand trembling. He doesn't stand wondering if this God will approve of him or not. He doesn't stand there wondering if he's going to live another day. He actually says, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. His praise is always going to be on my mouth. My soul boasts in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be not scared, but glad. 
magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. So the fear of Lord, the fear of the Lord not only is this thing that understands his character and who he is and rejoices in it, but it invites other people into it. Now, I don't know a whole lot of fears that we like to invite people into, except for the saying, misery loves company. But aside from that, typically fear is not something you're like, hey, everybody, this is so scary. Come join me. Now, maybe a haunted house or experience that you know is not really, really there, but it's kind of like the feeling of being, but a true experience where you are scared for your life and you have no idea what the outcome is going to be, usually we don't invite people into that. We tell people to stay away from it. And so yet this person, as he understands God, the psalmist delights in God, delights in his character, delights in his word. The, the praises of this God is ever on his lips. This doesn't sound like someone who is scared to death. It sounds like someone who has found joy in the midst of a righteous fear. A righteous fear puts God in his right place. It understands who he is and that he is above all and that he's all powerful and that he's sovereign and that somehow his way of living and thinking and acting is always going to be in my interest and for my good, no matter what the situation may look like. That is a fear of God that causes us to rejoice no matter what the circumstances are. And what it also does is it makes other fears dissipate. So in other words, if I have a fear of man or I have a fear of my situation or a fear of my lack of provision, all of a sudden when I rightly situate God in my life, those fears dissipate because I look at who God is and go, how could God not come through for me? How could God not want what's best for me? Now, it doesn't mean that my idea of my best and God's idea of my best are the same thing. Our economies are very different. But what it does mean is ultimately, I can trust that whatever his decisions are, they're better than my decisions, no matter if I agree with that or not. It's trusting that he's wiser, that he has a longer, bigger picture in mind than what I can even see. And somehow, what other people are intending for evil, somehow he's intending for good. Because he's never caught off guard. He's never defeated. He always wins. He's always the conqueror. And his story is always ever-evolving in our lives. And it's always to show how he's faithful. He's faithful in our disobedience and he's faithful in our obedience. You know what I mean by that, right? When we disobey him, he shows that he's faithful to do what he says he's going to do, his wrath. And when we are obedient, he's faithful to show that he's loving towards all that he has made. And those who are humble and approach him in that way, they will not in any wise be cast down. He shows himself faithful no matter what our response is. The question is, what side of his faithfulness do you want to experience? It continues on in verse 18. So after he's made this edict and they say, um, I, we're not going to do this because we fear the Lord. So, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, oh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So basically, they're saying, oh, these, these Hebrew women, they're not like you frou-frou 
Egyptian women. I mean, they, they, they don't sit there and scream and, and shout and, and need grapes and somebody to fan them the whole time at a bunch of pillows. All we know is they go into labor and poof, there's the baby. And they're like, they go on. They go on about their day. They go on cooking bread and stuff. And so they have them too fast. And so they're having them faster than we can get there. And so we're not able to kill these boys as they're being delivered. When we get to where it's going, they're already there. They're already nursing them. So we're not able to do it. Okay. And look at verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So again, I want you to see the progression here. Enslave them, they grew in number. Treat them harshly, they grew in number. Kill the baby boys, they grew in number. It gets more and more dark and God shows his favor and power more and more the darker it gets. Do you see this? Now, there's another thing that's very interesting here. Again, I told you, Pharaoh's not mentioned, yet these Hebrew midwives are mentioned. I think that's a powerful thing because what in this story does Pharaoh seem to be the most scared of? What is it that he wants killed? The boys. Should have been more afraid of the girls, according to this story. I mean, it's the Hebrew midwives that get mentioned. It's, it's Moses' mother that takes a risk. It's Moses' sister that goes out there and watches. It is Pharaoh's daughter who comes and worships at the Nile and sees this little baby and takes it as her own. I mean, he's so worried about the men that he forgets about the women, and the women are the heroes of the story. They're the ones that come through. They're the ones that show their faith in God, and God uses them to bring about a deliverer for his people. Now, again, I want you to see this because this is true across the scripture. Whenever you come to a Passover meal, how many of y'all have celebrated Passover with us here before at Mars Hill? Now, you know, if you remember from that experience, what's the first thing that happens before anything takes place at the Passover meal? The mother is the one who gets up and does what? She lights the candles on the table. And the tradition is this. The woman always brings light to the dark table. That's how Passover always starts. Isn't it interesting that the very story of the Exodus is in this dark, dark time, you have women and their faith and fear of God bringing light to a dark situation. What a beautiful thing, because when you get into the New Testament, what do you have but Mary bringing the light of Christ into the world? She brings the light into the darkness. This is a fulfillment of what was, what was promised in Genesis. Through the seed of woman would come one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. So again, we see God's faithfulness in all of this, and we see God's pattern in all of this. But then the question comes, like, yeah, that's true. Why did Pharaoh want the boys dead? Because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if you think about it from the overpopulation standpoint. Because women are responsible for overpopulation more so than men are. What I mean is you can have a limited number of men and a whole bunch of women and you can populate the earth. But if you have a whole bunch of men and two women, you're not going to make a whole lot of you're not going to make a whole lot of strides in populating the earth again, right? So the thing is, if you're worried about overpopulation, it seems like what you would want to do is kill the girls, not the boys. So why does he choose the boys? 
And I think it's found in verse 10 going back. I think it's verse 10 of chapter 1 where he says that let's deal harshly with them lest they join our enemies. If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. Well, who are going to be the ones who fight against them. It's going to be the males. And so I think that's probably why he is focused in on the males because he's afraid of a revolt from the inside out. And so he's trying to subvert that by having all of the males killed so that there are no warriors to join with the enemies if they ever come in against Pharaoh. That's probably why he's focused in on them. But again, it just shows you the futility of human thinking and reasoning because God takes what he's not looking at and uses it to thwart all of his plans. Just like God, right? Now, the other question we have here is, did the midwives sin? Now, that is a classic story right here because they go to Pharaoh and say, why, why are you not killing these boys when they're being born? They're like, oh, let me just tell you. Whew, we have tried, Pharaoh. We have tried. But what happens is every time we get there, the babies are already born. And so there's this whole like, section of theological debate that centers on, is it okay to lie in certain situations if there's a greater good that's going to be accomplished? And so there's a whole side of theologians and scholars who say, yes, there is an order of things that you have to value. And in this situation, they always come to this example and, and maybe a couple of others in scripture, but this one specifically, um, Rahab would be the other one where she hides the spies, but we're here, so let's deal with this one right here. Um, you have them saying life is more important than whether you're telling the truth or not. Therefore, if you have to lie to protect life, then it's okay to lie, that's not a sin. Now, the illustration, classic illustration, World War II, the Nazis are trying to kill the Jews. And many of them in Germany and other places were hiding Jews. And the Nazi soldiers would come to the house and knock on the door and say, are you hiding any Jews? Do you have any Jews in the house? And they would say, no, we, we, we are not. We are not hiding any Jews. And so they would say, well, that is the right thing to do because the wrong thing to do would be like, mm, yeah, we are, they're down in the cellar. Um, that would be de defeat the whole purpose of what you were trying to do to begin with. And so there's this whole debate about whether it's okay to lie in certain situations and whether maybe it's not a sin or, or maybe it's a sin, but it's not a sin that God looks at unfavorably because the truth is verse 20 tells us that God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And even verse 21 tells us that he, he dealt so favorably with them that he gave them families of their own. So this is something God obviously is blessing. So the question is, is he blessing lies? Is he blessing sins? Well, let me just point one thing out to you. Verse 15, verse 17 Verse 20 and verse 21 give us no indication at all that the midwives did anything wrong or that could be even be called sin. What I'm saying is when you read their response to Pharaoh, you assume that they're telling them a lie. But there's nothing in the story that says that they weren't having the babies before they got there. Maybe in their very smart minds that women have, they were like, let's walk a little slower, Pua. And so they walk a little slower and they're like, oh, you already had the baby? Ah, oh, sorry. Oh, the Smiths? Okay. We'll see them right after lunch today. And so they go and they eat lunch and oh, you already had your baby? Oh, we missed another one. It never says that they lied. It never says that they were showing up and seeing that a baby boy was being born 
and just let the baby be born. So it could be that they were dealing as shrewdly with Pharaoh as Pharaoh was trying to deal with them. So there's no indication there that they actually lied to Pharaoh. Do you see the difference there? And the beauty of this, it gets me out of having to go any further of explaining whether it's okay to lie in certain situations. So I can move on. All right, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So again, he's fixated on these males, these sons. He doesn't want this army to grow. He doesn't want to have these warriors that can fight against him later on. And notice again, it takes another step towards darkness. It goes from slavery to the brutal treatment of slaves to infant side to flat out murder. Okay? This is saying when you see a little Hebrew child running around, pick him up and throw him in the Nile Maybe kill him before you throw him in the Nile. Maybe you throw him in there and just watch him drown. But he's bringing it to the point of saying to all of his people, not to the midwives. Now he's opened up to all the Egyptians. I need your help in this. We've got to stop this population growth and we've got to stop this threat that's coming from within. So we are going to kill these boys. Now, here's what's interesting. The Egyptian people, as as odd as many of their practices were and their beliefs were in that day, the one thing that we know that's been pretty consistent about Egyptians is that they were not people who participated in human sacrifices. Okay? They were not people who sacrificed babies to their gods. Now, you do find that in the Canaanites. Many of the Canaanites would take their babies and throw them into fires as a dedication, as a sacrifice to their gods. You don't find that in Egypt. So how in the world was Pharaoh able to muster up the people to throw these babies into the Nile. Well, one thing we have to understand is that the Nile is a god in Pharaoh. They, they viewed the Nile as God. It was what brought life to them. Now, how in the world do you favor the God that brings life to you by making it a source of death? Well, Pharaoh is coalescing, I think, to using religion to achieve his purposes. In other words, what he's saying to them is, these Hebrew children are a threat to us. If we don't take care of this now, they're going to overthrow us later, and it's going to devastate your life. Therefore, let's ask the God's favor by throwing these children to this God so that he may look favorably upon us and give us life. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because these are not a people that are known for that type of thing. But Pharaoh says, maybe if I mix passion and religion together, I can get them to do things that they normally wouldn't do. Do you see any relationship to the time that we live in? It's exactly what happens in our politics today. And I don't care what side you're on. It's exactly what happens in politics, especially when you get to the extreme ends of it. It is all about manipulating people. It's a creating an us and a them and that we are right and they are wrong. And so because they're wrong and we're right, we have to stifle them. We have to push them down. And ultimately, you get to this reasoning of they really don't even deserve to live, which gets you to the point of justifying the murder of other people. I'm telling you, it's an old story, but history just keeps repeating itself over and over again. Now, I know that we are not in a day and time where we are casting babies into a Nile, 
But I want to tell you, when there's 40,000 children that are aborted every day, are we not further along than they are? And what is the God that we are dedicating these children to? Well, let me just remind you how Planned Parenthood started. It was to get rid of the less desirable of our population. Okay? Sanger, who was the one who was a proponent of that, she wanted to get rid of minorities, and she wanted to get rid of the physical defective and the mental deficiencies. This is a way that she said we can bolster our immune systems and our, our skill, our strength, by only letting the strong survive, whether it's mental capacity or physical capacity or health capacity, abortion was started to eliminate those who are in, perceived to be weak. Let me tell you that. That's an ideology. And I'm telling you what happens is, hey, come and do this and we can have this. It's all playing on the motives and emotions of people to get them to do something they would normally never do, never even think of, but then you provide them with a reason and all of a sudden people can do something that they would never find themselves doing. I mean, think about the day that we live in versus the day that Moses was born in. And it's not all that far off. He gets everybody involved. He gets them to throw these babies into the river now, it doesn't tell us how they died. Um, did they cut the throat of the babies and, and were somewhat humane before just throwing them in the water and letting them flail and drown? We, we don't know exactly how that happened. But if they did kill the babies before throwing them in, think about what that would have done to the water of the Nile. It would have made it turn what? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because when you go a little bit further in the story, you're going to find, spoiler alert, the first plague is when God turns the Nile into blood. God has a way of giving his enemies what they want in a way they didn't want it. Not only do you find that, but what's the last plague? The death of the firstborn male or son. Again, how does it start? Pharaoh's trying to kill the sons of Israel. Pharaoh is turning the Nile blood red by throwing these children into the Nile. And God says, oh, is that what you want? I'll show you what that looks like. God always has a way of showing his enemies what they want in a way they didn't want it. Look how it continues in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Again, paying attention to details, they mention that they are from this tribe. What significance does that have right here? Absolutely none. It doesn't really have any significance until you get much later on in the story when you have some order that's being established to this new nation of Israel. And what we find is that God chooses the Levite tribe to be the priestly tribe. So all the priests come from the tribe of Levi and the high priest comes from the tribe of Levi and specifically from the house of Moses and his brother Aaron, okay? So Aaron becomes the first official high priest, but let me just tell you the first high priest was Moses. And that's why they're establishing this here. If you think about it, what is the role of a priest or especially the high priest, but to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And that's the role that Moses fulfills as this whole journey out of Egypt begins and into the wilderness begins. 
Why? Because he's the one that's going before God, receiving what God says, and he goes to the people. And then he goes to God on behalf of the people and pleads their case and asks God to hold back his anger against them because of their sin. So he is that mediator. We see him also becoming the mediator between Pharaoh and the people, or God and Pharaoh. So again, he's mediating God's wrath, and he also mediates God's blessings. He is that true mediator. Again, when you start drawing the lines to the New Testament, you see this beautiful picture of Jesus who was born in a time when they were trying to kill all the other boys and God hid him away. And then he brings him back out after the King Herod dies. And then the ministry of Jesus is all about representing the people to God and representing God to the people. He also represents the wrath of God to those who choose sin as their lot. And he represents the blessings of God to those who would repent in the favor of God. He pleads their case. So again, you're seeing these little microcosms of the gospel long before the gospel ever happens. Again, God is showing his plan and his way of salvation, and he's given us these patterns early on. Look at verse 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, that seems a little odd because you're sitting there going, well, if it was an ugly child, would she have been like, eh, I'm not going to really worry about this one. Now, that's not what the word means. The word means beautiful. It's literally translated not fine child, but beautiful child. But that really carries the connotation of, okay, here's a great example. And I just thought of this, but you remember the passage that says, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring 